Garrett, have you ever made devil horns with your fist? Uh, not that I can remember. Have you ever banged your head? <laughs> no, not particularly. Well, we're going to talk about it in this opus of Triloquy. Let's get to it. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. This is going to be a shining opus for you, Scott, because uh, we get to talk a little bit about um, guitar in this prelude. Yeah. Uh, today's guest, uh, her name is Kalina Bovel. She is the assistant director, um, assistant music director down at the Memphis Symphony, my my hometown, former stomping grounds. It's, it's always great um, for me to uh, learn about what's going on down in Memphis. You know, Scott, a predominantly black city with um, now a black woman who is the assistant um, director of their orchestra. It, it's really significant. You know, people often ask, Excuse me, why does race matter? Well, you know, I, I don't know. In, in a situation like that, it is so huge why it matters because this city where most folks are black can go to the orchestra and um, and see someone who looks like them on the podium. Yeah. Very, very, very significant. Uh, what, what were your um, your takeaways from meeting uh, Kalina? We, we recorded the conversation a few weeks ago back at the Sphinx Conference, by the way. But, uh, but Scott, what, what were your sort of uh, takeaways from meeting her for the first time? The first takeaway was just how kind and warm she is, you know, that she made me feel like we knew each other for a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it was also great to talk to her about metal, right. about heavy metal. You know, um, I, of course, I have my metal days in my past. I don't listen to it as much. Mm -hmm. But it was cool to hear her influence because she was listening to bands that were coming out right as I was starting to get away from it. Yeah. So we did a little music swap. That yeah. was nice to... You know, get some new listening from her, and I hope that she listens to Iron Maiden. I okay. really hope that she gives Iron Maiden a shot. Oh, well, Kalina, if you're listening, Iron Maiden, you, you have to give them a shot. And again, you know, it's, it's really, um, I think it validates uh, classical music in a way to really explore ways in which other genres that classical music professionals like bleed over. Uh, into classical and, and, and how it relates. Um, so as we're doing uh, this month for Women's History Month, uh, we're shouting out a, a few uh, women in music to uh, open each opus, to uh, to dive into in each prelude. Um, who, who, are, who are some of the names, or, or who's, who's the name that you brought in uh, today? If you go on YouTube, and you can, you can do a Google search for classical music, heavy metal guitar. Sure. And you're going to unearth all sorts of people who have done famous classical pieces on a distorted electric guitar. Tina Setkick is the one that gets passed around a lot. She um, made a name for herself doing an, uh, a metal version of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and it's convincing. Yeah. But if your uh, if your musical taste is more on the classical side than metal, I would look at Soren Madsen. Oh, on, I don't on think YouTube. I know Soren. Okay, um, he takes 
metal songs and then does them on a nylon string classical guitar. So like his uh, his big one was Metallica's Nothing Else Matters. Mm. Really a beautiful treatment of it. And if you didn't know beforehand that that was a Metallica song, I don't think you would be able to, de- to detect it. Wow. Before we get too far away, um, you know, Tina Setkin, um, I, I looked over at uh, some of her bio and her website, you know, born in 1999. <laughs> should, should, should we be talking about her when it comes to women's history? We're history when it comes right. <laughs> compared to her. But, it's, it's her story. Yeah. But um, but yeah, shout out to shout out to her really doing some incredible work blending metal and classical music. Uh, one of the names that I wanted to make sure um, I brought up today was Sister Rosetta Tharp. So do you know who? Uh, much much about her a lot of people don't when i saw a video of her i went oh that's the woman for again she had a video out that went viral that you know seemed to be going through everybody on facebook yeah of her just owning that Gibson SG. Yeah, you know, w- one of her biggest claims to fame is that she's one of the first um, to use uh, distortion in her playing, and mm. she and she comes up from the um, from the gospel tradition and the uh, rhythm and blues tradition. But the way she played guitar um, laid the foundation for so many other artists, and that's why they call her the godmother of rock and roll. You know, not only is this genre that folks call rock and roll born. Um, from the work of a woman, but um, of a black woman of the early uh, early to mid 20th century. So, you know, when you tie in all of the challenges and all of the systemic issues of that time, you know, it's it's easy to understand why her name wouldn't be as famous as some of the people who um, her playing influenced, including Johnny Cash, Elvis, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, who you had to tell me a little bit about uh, before mm. we cut the mics on, yeah. you know, an interesting figure. But yeah, interesting. Uh, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. With, with quote hands, but and uh, and Sister Rosetta Tharp and I share a birthday, which is something I uh, recently learned. So I'll be sure to uh, be thinking about her on my birthday. And uh, and yeah, sh- shout out to um, Sister Rosetta Tharp, just a really important figure in music, um, a seminal guitar player when it comes to rock and roll, and um, and and someone who I think we all should be paying more attention to, not just during Women's History Month, but every month. Before we uh, jump into our conversation uh, with Maestro uh, Kalina, there's uh, there's one more name I wanted to bring up. Maybe also appropriate for Women's History Month um, is her name is Amy Lee. So she uh, leads a band called Evanescence, mm-hmm. a band that 
you know, I used to get made fun of for loving so much. If <laughs> if if you are if you're listening and you are uh, or were an Evanescence fan, shout out to you because I think the music is just really incredible. Um, it, it's kind of obvious to my ear how they tie in uh, classical uh, techniques into the uh, the music they create. I don't know if it, many people will call it metal, but maybe it's goth something or you know sure. e- emo or whatever. Um, you know, Amy Lee uh, leads as a vocalist, and and she's also a really incredible uh, pianist and every opportunity that uh, she has to tie in some bit of classical she does so uh, later on in, in um, our conversation with Kalina you'll hear her bring up Amy Lee's Evanescence's uh, rendition of uh, Lacrimosa which is a part of Mozart's Requiem yeah. I was first exposed to the Lacrimosa through Amy Lee through a tune that they call uh, Lacrimosa so um, here's a bit of that to uh, to take us to our conversation with maestro Kalina Bovell Kalina Bovell, maestro. Kalina, it's so great to have you here on Triloquy. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Always good to catch up with you and get back in touch with you. Yeah, yeah. And I want to shout out Stefan for uh, connecting us initially because, you know, he knew that you were uh, getting a job down in Memphis and he knew that was uh, my hometown. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get into, um, we'll get into that here a bit. Um, but right now, you know, we're taping um, at the annual uh, Sphinx Conference, Sphinx Connect 2020. Um, and it's your, your first go around. You've been here for a few days at this point. How that's, you feeling? That's correct. Uh, I think I, what, we all flew in Tuesday um, because we were here for the SOPA auditions, which is the Sphinx Orchestral Partnership auditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically those are musicians who want to receive feedback on their playing. So, I mean, I've been here since Tuesday and I've heard some phenomenal players. Um, and then earlier today, I was able to listen to a little bit of the competition. And oh, I mean, yeah. I heard probably one of the best cellists I've heard in a long time. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And, and how am I feeling? Like, I'm feeling great because I'm sipping on this latte right now. So <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling fantastic. So maybe a future uh, Memphis Symphony cellist. I tell you what, maybe. <laughs> and Scott, this is your first time here at Sphinx too. You you just got yep. here, but already you're saying that you're you know kind of a celebrity here in these circles. I've met four people, <laughs> <laughs> but four people who knew who you were or knew of you, right? Right, right. They they came up to me first, and said, I'm not used to this. It's almost like, oh man, somebody's looking. Are you telling me somebody's watching? <laughs> you become VIP all of a sudden, right? I don't know about that, but it's nice. <laughs> but it well, is nice. You know, I'm always excited to be here. I'm feeling real good right now so um uh we're fresh off of um black history month you know as this is airing um and march um is officially women's history month but kalina you kind of you know fall into both of those uh categories uh something that i asked all of the guests during black history month was what is wrong with black history month what's wrong with the way we're treating it uh the way it is in the curriculum um i guess i kind of want to ask you uh that same question but mixing in the idea of women's history month do you mm-hmm. do you feel like we're really uh, equitably learning and celebrating women in classical music well i mean i look at it almost like valentine's day right mm. so why is it 
we have to celebrate our partners on one day of the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of relate that to Women's History Month, that's fantastic that women have our own month. Yeah. But why is it just one month out of the year where we are celebrating, quote unquote, women? Yeah. We should be celebrating their achievements throughout the entire year. Right. And it's the same thing for Black History Month. I mean, obviously, it was every February growing up where we learned about, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Mary McLeod Bethune, you yeah. know, all these different people. But again, it was, why only in February? Right, right. And I remember there's a conductor, um, Thomas Wilkins, who used to say... Yeah, shout his, out. Yeah, I know yes, him. His, yeah. his busiest month is February. <laughs> right? He's a, he's a black conductor, a black by conductor. the way, Scott. And so, you know, he was, like, he was like, oh, I will never go broke in February. And it's true. Yeah. It's February or MLK Day. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and more recently, Juneteenth is becoming something that uh, a lot more people are, are selling. I, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed. I'm glad that, you know, people are aware and, mm-hmm. and uh, the awareness of black culture is growing. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's easy to, you know, it's a thin line between uh, collaboration and tokenization. But also, know? why do you think the awareness is more prevalent now because of black culture? Well, I think is I think it's because a lot of uh, institutions don't have a choice but to pay attention, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and as you know, you're not the first black person to stand on um, uh, the Memphis Symphony Orchestra podium, um, but maybe the first black woman. If if I'm if I'm thinking back, I'm trying to think all the way far back. I don't think I I remember there being a black woman who has a position a podium position mm-hmm. uh, with the Memphis Symphony. Um, but it's interesting because, as you have learned at this point, Memphis is a black city, a mostly course, black yeah. city. How do you deal with the dichotomy of walking and existing in, you know, one of the whitest spaces within one of America's blackest cities? You know, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I had, this, one. I had that conversation with someone the other day where you know, to the black community in Memphis or just in general, you know, there's so much pride and there's so much love, Mm -hmm. you know, but then I do know, I'm, I'm sure that there's some people in Memphis who are non-people of color who look at me as being the token, right? you know? So, I mean, the way I view that, it's something that I've had to basically live with my entire life because being a, a black classical musician, you always have to prove yourself to your white counterpart right? and sometimes to your white male counterpart. And I think I've mentioned this before, you know, this whole notion of there is a black tax, yeah. which is basically as a person of color, you walk around with this idea that you have to work three times as hard as your counterpoint to prove yourself. And I remember when I first started my job, you know, I actually told my colleagues that I was like, when you all tease me about waking up at 530 to study, it's because I have to prove to you that I am worthy of this job. What do you what, do, what have you seen as the response to, to that among your colleagues? You know, I think once I let my guard down a little bit, just a little bit, because it's still up. Yeah. You know, daddy raised me right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of them, I have earned their respect, but it's less of my actions as an example of studying. And it's more of the work that I've been producing on the podium. Yeah. You know, like I've had colleagues come up to me and say, you know, wow, you you really continue to improve or you look so different compared to when you first started. Not saying that I was bad when I first started. Of course not. You got the job. Yeah. But, you know, that they can really see the growth. And I remember there was a colleague who said, you know, I don't what I don't know what it is you're doing, but whatever it is, like, keep doing it because it's working. Wow. Wow. You know, and that speaks volumes. Yeah. Uh, You you know, you mentioned uh, your father raising you, right? You know, you you aren't just, you know, a a black woman. You're an an Afro-Latina. How how about you uh, talk to us a little bit um, about your upbringing, where where you grew up and how classical music became a thing? Oh, I mean, classical music was not a thing growing up. I'll tell you that. Um, But so I was born and raised in L.A., Los Angeles, California. Uh, My parents are from Panama. 
take the accent off. They're from Panama. Okay. Um, <laughs> Shade. That, that's how I, mean, I say it. I get teased all the time because I know my accent is thick, but I don't, I'm not fluent in Spanish. Oh, okay. Um, so I was born in the States. I'm a first generation. And the way it worked out was, you know, my mom wanted my brother and myself to assimilate to the dominant culture, which was English. And she really felt that Spanish would be a useless language. So with my brother, he was born in Panama, spoke Spanish, was fluent. When they brought him over, my mom was like, okay, to all of his teachers in school, do not speak Spanish to him. We only want him to learn English. So I think by the time he finished first grade, he no longer spoke English. Oh, my goodness. And then they didn't speak Spanish to me. So English is my dominant language and has always been my dominant language. So I learned um, Spanish in high school. But it's still broken, and I can understand um, more than I can speak. Yeah. But I get by because I have that accent. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is my dad would always tell me and my brother, he's like, you know, even though we come from a Spanish-speaking country, the first thing people are going to notice about you is the fact that you're black. Yeah. And so he made us very aware of the fact that our skin color will always be that barrier. Mm. And that's something that I walked around with, you know, throughout my upbringing. And so when it came to playing classical music, so I started playing violin in sixth grade. Um, I was 11 years old. I was in a beginning strings class, and everyone had to take music, so that was the class I was put into. Yeah. Um, but even then, I remember, like, um, one of my colleagues who was white, you know, basically saying, yeah, you'll, you'll never be good enough because you're not Asian. And, of course, I was like, oh okay, well, then I need to prove to you, again, black tax, yeah. that I will be better than what you think I can do. So it's like even at such a young age, I was already kind of being put into this box of because of my uh, skin color, I'm not going to be X, Y, and Z. And then you throw my gender on top of it. (laughs) Then you're like, okay, then it's already a double negative. And being Latina, that's a triple negative. So I mean, mean, you know, being African-American, a woman and Hispanic, that's already three strikes against me, so to speak, Mm. because we are the... I guess the minority that has always been kind of prejudiced or judged when you think about it. Right, right. But classical music, yeah, was never a part of my upbringing. I mean, it was something I fell into. Yeah. Because, like I said, I I actually started singing when I was nine. Um, And and not gospel, but, you know, I just kind of sang whatever was in my soul to sing. Yeah. And my friends and I in middle school, we had a singing group. We would write our own songs. Like, we would, we could blow, you know? Yeah. But when I discovered violin, it was like, well, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, this this is my calling. Well, how about you sing a song for us now? I mean, <laughs> now nah, we, don't, we don't need to go all that. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> uh, what was the piece that did it for you, though? What was the... What was for the, violin? Yeah. What got you hooked? You know, there there wasn't a specific piece. Honestly, what it was was just the first time I bowed a string and just how natural it felt for mm. me. Feel that reverberation down your body. Yeah, and, and it was just something that, and I think maybe it was this kid saying, you'll never be good because you're Asian. I mean, it kind of lit this fire. Like, oh, yeah? All right. Yeah, like it lit a fire. And at first it was like, well, I'm going to practice to prove this person wrong. But then it became, well, I'm going to practice because I keep getting better. Yeah. Mm. You know, and I kept getting better. And my parents used to yell at me to stop practicing because they'd be like, all right, we want to go to bed. I'm like, but I got 20 minutes left. Let me practice. (laughs) Like I was that kid, you know, so that was really interesting. But I mean, growing up in my house, it was Anita Baker, Aretha Luther, you know, Marvin Gaye. You never heard Bach, Mozart, Haydn. Mm -hmm. Like, no, none of that. Your parents knew my parents, it sounds like. (laughs) Exactly. You know, but then you throw in, like, the reggaeton, Celia Cruz, El General, like, you know, Selena, that stuff was also in our house. Yeah, yeah. And 
but but somehow along the way you got into metal. I mean, but it's so good. So it's funny because my boss, Robert Moody, teases me all the time about the fact that I love death metal. And, you know, he he looks at me and he's like, I don't I don't understand, but it's what she likes. And I mean, I just like the rawness and the realness of that genre of music, yeah. you know, and the things that they can do with their voices um, vocally in terms of the screaming, in terms of the clean singing, you know, and when you read the lyrics, there's just such a human factor to it. That when you look at the music that's being produced today, that's garbage, mm. is missing. Mm-hmm. Well, shots fired there. Definitely. Are you, <laughs> are, are, are you uh, Scott? Are you much into death metal, or did you have a death metal phase? I have an appreciation for it, of course. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about. Um, there are no metal songs that are like upbeat. <laughs> you know, like oh, it's, this is a great day. <laughs> Nobody. It's always about. Uh, suffering or injustice yeah. or yeah. Uh, a hopelessness. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you already talked about the rawness of it. Tell me about the artists that you were gravitating to. Oh, man. So who do I listen to? So I listen to Marilyn Manson. Love him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rob Zombie. There's a band called Motionless and White that is fantastic that I love. Um, him, which was a band from Finland, Finland was my favorite. Uh, love Silverchair, but I also love a band called Three Teeth, which is mainly industrial. Um, Tool, Slipknot, you know. Um, Slipknot's right from my neck of the woods. Oh, really? Yeah, and, they're from Des Moines. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then there's a band I just discovered called Carnifex or Carnifex. I mean, like super heavy, but, and again, it's it's not like, oh, this is, you know, roses and sunshine. But mm-hmm. I think there's also really great art that comes from despair. That's true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, what is the Negro spiritual after all? I mean, that's that's very true. You know, and you're talking to someone who, so I battled depression for five years, mm-hmm. you know, ages 19 to 24. Um, and so from that came a really fantastic poetry book of just, you know, what I went through. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I think there's something incredibly beautiful about art that has create, created from darkness because that's how you eventually reach the light. So you know, I, I'm I'm not at all versed in metal, but I remember. Um, so I, I guess I'll, as a precursor, you know, uh, for for many years of my development, mm-hmm. I was a bartender. So a oh, part I of didn't my know that. yeah, so a part of my life was you know coming home at 4 a.m. and just seeing what's on the TV, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into a lot of shows, especially on Adult Swim. You know, I've, I've shown you <laughs> Rick and Morty, but oh, but oh, Metalocalypse. Oh. But Metalocalypse. <laughs> when I first saw that, I was so blown away. Yeah. I mean, because and, and I, I guess we can really relate this to classical music in that my understanding of death metal was rooted in again these images of despair and being hardcore, and mm-hmm. and so for that show to kind of break that down just mm-hmm. tickled me to death. And then you know when you match that with you know the the extreme the metal technique yeah. that you need to play that genre yeah. Yeah. you know they I, I forget the character's name now but they they make fun of that uh that one character because he always has his guitar and he's always mm-hmm. you know um fingering uh through something but mm-hmm. you know the the level of technique you need to perform that music is is yeah. really incredible a that, lot of them a lot of them are classically trained yeah, yeah and, and that's and that's what's fantastic i mean no doubt everyone loved gwen stefani and no doubt mm-hmm. back in the early, early 90s and Tom Dumont, famous guitarist of that band, you know, he said, yeah, I went to school and he studied music theory. And he's like, I hated it. Mm. But he said mm-hmm. it gave him such an appreciation because Gwen's brother never studied theory whatsoever. Mm-hmm. When, you know, he says, that, but he was a musical genius. And then he's going through theory, learning all these rules. And he's like, but how is it Gwen's brother can do all these things that breaks the rules? 
and yet still somehow can create this fantastic melody or this fantastic song. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. I mean, when you think about metal, they are classically trained. And once you have that training, only then can you start to break the rules. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So you can you, you take have, flight. You have the foundation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the uh, If you go into Guitar Center now, you can find sheet music for Paganini Etudes. Wait, really? Yeah. Um, videos being shared online. Uh, in particular, this one young woman absolutely shredding the Moonlight Sonata, you know, on guitar. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is a, is a good way to sort of cross-pollinate the, the formats, get classical listeners interested in metal or metal interested in classical? Is oh, that... most definitely. I think anything that brings awareness to various genres is a fantastic thing. Mm. You know, I think of Evanescence and their second yes. album and how they use the Lacrimosa from, yes, um, from Mozart's, Mozart's Requiem. Requiem. Yeah. You know, I used to teach at a boarding school. And so during one of my orchestra sessions with the kid, I was like, hey, we're going to play Mozart Requiem. Here's the Lacrimosa. And then I played the Evanescence version. I was like, okay, let's have Mm. a conversation about it. And some kids didn't like it because they're like, oh, it takes away from the original. I was like, but does it? Oh, stop. You know, and actually my exposure to Mozart's Lacrimosa was from listening to Evanescence. Was it really? And sure, I mean, I don't know. Surely you don't consider them a metal band. They're one of the bands that folks would make fun of me for liking. But you know what? But she's, all, <laughs> but I love she's a classically trained opera yeah, singer. Yeah, shout out to Amy Lee. Yeah, beautiful piano player as but, well. Right? So, I mean, you think about that. It's like, again, here's a person who is crossing over into so many different genres mm-hmm. and is bringing awareness to that. Yeah. You know, Kim and Nancy Wilson. I don't know if Nancy's classically trained, but Kim could be an opera singer, I'm sure. Really? Yeah. You know, Hart, the band Hart. Uh, I heard of them. I don't think I've ever heard any of their music, though. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll write a couple things down for All you right, to right check on. out. Yeah. You know, some uh, some weeks ago we had um, a music theorist um, and a, a composer on. Shout out to uh, Garrett Schumann, and you know he famously has written um, literature about uh, music theory in metal and and you know the the. Um, you know the the what what do you call it the the Roman numeral analysis and all that stuff of, of yeah, these famous tunes base, yeah. yeah but but he actually um, is not a fan again of these crossovers of these metal versions of the Moonlight Sonata or it does seem to be uh, hot and cold love it or hate it yeah r- really really polarizing I mean what what do you from your perspective what's what's at the root of that you have and you know Scott uh, this this conversation has also reminded me of when we had. Uh, the Phantom and the Phoenix on, you know, mm-hmm. so they're a rap duo, uh, Kalina, who um, who fused classical with hip hop, and, okay. and you know, and he talked a lot about how um, he would get it equally on both sides. How both sides are saying you're bastardizing the art form. Mm-hmm. M- maybe Garrett Schumann didn't use that language, but he doesn't particularly, you know, like that crossover either. W- what do you think is at the root of that? Why do I we th- have to stay stay so segmented? I think it's so funny. So before I answer that question, like you know. I thought immediately of hip hop violin. Have you all heard of hip hop violin? I know mm. black violin. Sorry, black violin. Yeah, oh, yes. yeah, of, that's, of course. That's, that's what yeah. I thought of. Yeah. You know, and it's like, because I went to a concert when they were in Hartford. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, they would do like the Cardi B and all these people. And I'd have to lean over to a friend and be like, who, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> who sings this? And they'd be like, oh, Cardi B. Oh, okay. But then, you know, they would do the Bach and then be like, who is this? Oh, this is Bach. Oh, you know? so, oh that's interesting. Yeah. They help each other out. Oh. Yeah, help each other out. But I mean, you know, I think what it is, is is that people are so stuck in certain ways, meaning classical music has always been within this box. And it's always been for, I hate to say it, white male. And it has this connotation of it being elitist. Mm. Right. So then when you start to take it out of that context, I think people are afraid that they're going to lose 
um, I guess, the purity of what classical music is, was. But really, there has to be an evolution eventually. Right. You know, because how else is the art form going to continue to grow if we don't start pushing the envelopes ever so slightly? And if we honestly don't start, um, I guess, mixing different ideas? Because you also think about it. Who is the generation that we are going to be trying to reach as musicians? Yep. It's not going to be the older generations who love hearing the Beethoven, who love hearing, who loves hearing the Brahms. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the up and coming younger patrons. Right. And we have to find a way to connect with and engage those patrons. And if it is on their level in terms of mixing the genres, why is that a bad thing? I don't I don't think it is. And, you know, you talk about maintaining the purity of classical music. Half these composers had syphilis anyway. So, the, I mean, that was that music in that time was that. Well, I should say those composers and those artists were just as, quote unquote, rock and roll, just as metal as as folks now, probably more so. Right. You know, pr- yeah. pr- probably more, you know, scandalous. I mean, when I was when I was teaching radio production uh some of the students would try to give me a hard time about you know i was doing mornings at the classical station and they were giving me a hard time and i said you guys don't understand it these these composers were tearing up hotel rooms Mm -hmm. and had groupies lined up down Mm -hmm. the way way before all these bands that you listen to are doing it yeah so so they back off they ain't doing nothing well i mean that's like (laughs) so memphis we just did brahms three yeah maybe two months ago and I remember, I think it was during the fourth movement, I was like, man, dude, Brahms was such a rock and roll like star. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because there's like. Exactly. You know, I look at that and I'm like, dude, that's totally metal right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I kind of want to. So uh, we we chased this rabbit off the uh, off the trail. But so you were a violinist yes. <laughs> as a kid. Yes, and, I was classically and, um, trained. And you, you know, you fell in love. Mm-hmm. Um, when did the shift into conducting happen? Uh, the shift in the conducting happened when I reached undergrad. So basically, oh. I was a music education major. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and everyone had to take a year of orchestral conducting, semester of choral conducting. Mm-hmm. So sophomore year, I believe, yes. I'm in, you know, in instrumental conducting, and you know, we're learning our patterns and we're learning the different things. And you're like, all right, cool, left hand, right hand, fantastic. Get on the podium. And we all had to play for each other, right. you know. And so I give the first beat, and it's just like this wave of sound that just came towards me. And I was like, "What? what is this? Why have I never experienced this before? And it was just incredible, you know. Because one, as I, as I always remember, I mean, one, you get to influence the sound that's coming towards you. You know, you honestly get to shape it. Yeah. You know, and so, and then also to look at a score and see how all of these parts are footing together to create this idea who... Someone 200 years ago, maybe, had written down on a piece of paper. Yeah. I found all of that completely fascinating. Wow, wow. You know, and so my or um, conducting teacher at the time had just started at the school. And I was like, all right, I'm going to audit all of your classes. Oh, and wow. I'm going to do more work than your students in these classes. And that's honestly what happened. <laughs> Back to that black tax. Well, you know, know, it was that, but it was also that's how much I wanted to learn about it. You know, like I went to every single rehearsal with my score. Didn't really know what was going on, but I just knew that it was something that really piqued my interest. Yeah. You know, and so I remember my teacher let me conduct. um, He would have his, was it, conducting students conduct the orchestra as their final. Yeah. And I would always be like, am I going to get my shot? No. Okay, that's cool. But finally, one day, he's like, all right, clean and get up there. And it was Wagner's Siegfried Idol. Oh, yeah. You know, it was like bar 275. I only know this because the trumpet player comes in on like bar 283. Mm -hmm. They play for 13 bars and then they're done. 
But he was like, yeah, get up there and do it. And I was like, all right. You know, I did it. And at the end, he pulled me over. He was like, all right. So I think I think I misjudged this. He's like, I think you might have something. There, There's something here. And I was like, okay. And that's kind of how everything started. I mean, I honestly thought I was going to be a teacher. And I have taught. And I love teaching. You know, but I don't know. There's something about conducting that I just cannot let go of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, th- that, that reminds me a lot of, you know, one, one of my life stories. So when I was in grad school, actually, mm-hmm. I had to um, take conducting and that actually, you know, I was I was so good at that. that the teacher um, wanted to teach me privately. So I mm-hmm. took conducting lessons, mm-hmm. but I never went into it seriously because for me, there was just this notion that conductors are. are I don't I don't hardly like them anyway. <laughs> you know, uh, check out Cats, Cops and Conductors if you want a, <laughs> a, a deeper look at that. I forget what opus that is. <laughs> I was I was going to ask you, you t- you took conducting class? <laughs> but because it's fun. And it's, you know, w- w- my favorite thing, and Colleen, I bet you you can speak to this. You know, you, you talk about that moment that the trumpet has in the Siegfried Idol. Yeah. I was always tickled by giving the cues to the people who di- don't think I'm listening or yeah. don't think that mm-hmm. I know. I forget the last piece of music I conducted. It was uh, oh, it was the first movement of of Mozart's uh, Hofner symphony. So okay. I guess that's 35. 35, yeah. And um and the in the first movement uh, after the introduction the timpani comes in mm-hmm. out of nowhere after this place and I I gave him the the clearest most you know beautiful cue <laughs> and he was so shocked that I cued him he didn't he didn't come in. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I mean, it, it was always fun for me. But you know, again, the, the the notions behind conductor always bothered me. And you 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 already um, acknowledged that you know it can sort of be a white man's club. But I'm sure in many of your circles, you find that black men conductors also sort of occupy these uh, problematic areas or oh, or most whatever. definitely. I mean, I have two stories for you actually. You know, one regarding a white person who said something to me, and then also one regarding a black person who has said something to me. And you're gonna name both of them right <laughs> oh, Good. of course um, <laughs> no but what's interesting is when i was an under undergrad um i was working with a youth orchestra mm-hmm. and you know all everyone was pretty much my friend and people in the bass section were adults and so we would get on very well and i remember we were talking about conductors and one of the bass players white maybe early 30s he was like yeah you know you're really talented but he's like i don't know there's just something about taking direction from a woman conductor What's his name? Let's go get him. <laughs> but, you know, and so I was like, I can respect that. But it opened up this, like, huge discussion. But the thing is, you have to respect that in that moment, because if you go off like I would have, you're the angry black woman. Exactly. Well, and that's something that, again, let's be honest, black people have to code switch. You know, it's true. So in that instance. I don't know if we have to. Well, but, <laughs> but it happens. But yeah. often, it, it happens. Yeah. And in that instance, you have to be the diplomatic person again because you don't want to come off as the angry black woman. Right. But I mean, it opened up to a discussion of how seldom you see a woman on the podium and how, you know, we're just so used to seeing white European men on the podium and XYZ. And I think that's also um, just one of the things that is slowly changing about the field. But again, it's slowly changing. Yeah. You know, the fact that whenever you see a woman conductor who is appointed, as an example, Marin Alsop, the first question yeah, is... Yeah, shout out to her, yeah. yeah I but, think she's here at Sphinx, she actually. Is. She'll, yeah. she'll be speaking on Saturday. Mm-hmm. But why is the question, oh, what's it like to be a woman conductor? Well, what's it like to put on pants? Right. I mean, right. how about just what's it like to work with an orchestra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, you know, it's so easy to... To go to that question, what's it like to be a woman conductor? But I, I guess the way I think about that question um, is more rooted in the unique challenges that we might not think 
about. You that's know? true. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. But you didn't. You haven't dragged this black man conductor yet. Oh yeah. So this this <laughs> other uh, this this other story that I have for you. Um, and so I went through a conducting fellowship program, and um, obviously we'll not name names. But there was a conductor who came back to work with us, and I remember we were all having this lunch, and you know this person says, you know, let's let's just all kind of talk about your frustrations, what's going on, you know, and and how I can be of help and kind of give you some thoughts and and support. And it's like, okay, fantastic. And I remember this person got to me, and I was like, you know, I'm working at a boarding school, and it's not that I don't like my job, but it's just really difficult trying to to build two lives when you're working at a high school. And then you're also trying to build this career. And I remember this person said, well, you know, you're not getting any younger. And thank you. Yes. Thank you. Right. And he was like, you know, it's going to be it's going to be harder for you to get into the bigger named workshops. So maybe you should just stick to high school. That's that's your niche. And of course, I'm thinking you are also a black conductor who has probably faced some of the challenges that I will continue to face rather than supporting me. How are you tearing me down right now? And, you know, what's interesting is I think that within the black community, we are all very quick to tear each other down. Ain't that something? Crabs in a barrel. Exactly. Like, like my grandma used to say. Mm, mm, mm. But, it, I mean, it's really true. Yeah. Um, so, what, so what do you see as your role in that regard? Because, I don't know, and this is something that, um, that uh, we were talking about in a panel discussion that I led earlier today. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is our responsibility when it comes to um, inclusion and equity and, and all that sort of thing? I think my responsibility is to nip things in the bud and, mm-hmm. and, and call things out. But mm-hmm. as you've outlined, you can't always do that because of everything that comes with it and, and all of the things that are unique to being a black woman when it comes to. In, anyway, you yeah. know, what, what do you see as your role um, when it comes to breaking this stuff down? Well, I think the, my, the first thing is being representation for the community. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that those are very um, kind of, that's a, such a big weight to have on top of my shoulders. Of course. But, you know, I think about it. So in Memphis, we do a lot of ORF elementary concerts yeah. and ORF side-by-sides. Mm-hmm. And at the last side-by-side that we did, I believe we were at Germantown Elementary. Yeah. And, and sorry, and for folks who don't know, um, not the composer ORF, but ORF Schulwerk. I was yes. about to ask some yes. questions. Yes. ORF Schulwerk. Yes. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's a teaching method <laughs> yes. that ORF came up with that's for children. You were, you were probably an ORF student. Yeah, you know, m- m- Well, I, I did a break about it just a couple of days ago about how he led the way. What, like if you, if you had... In your kindergarten class, like glockenspiels and drums, right? My telephones, yeah, you know things. And the idea was to get them making noise mm-hmm. without performance, so that they're not like looking over mm-hmm. the shoulder and wondering who's looking at mm-hmm. them. Yeah, that that aspect was taken away. Um, I wish that I had that because I mean, we did have the instruments, but I don't have that feeling. Sure. Whenever I pick up the instrument, whenever I pick up my guitar, I like to play for you and Dell or something like mm-hmm. that. I get so nervous when I somebody's mean, looking at me. Same. You know, like ORF was not big in California, but mm. I, I see that it's very big here in Memphis. And, yeah, you know, yeah. the- it was actually one of the found. So when it came across the ocean, uh-huh. it was Memphis and Las Vegas. That, really? So, yeah, there's a long, strong tradition of ORF Schulwerk in Memphis. And then, you know, for folks who didn't study ORF as a kid, it was probably the, the Kodai method exactly. formed by Zoltan Kodai. So, yeah. so one of those two schools yeah. uh, schools of thought. Anyway, well, um, and, uh, and, or an ORF side by side, you were well, talking and about. And for people who don't know kind of the concepts behind ORF, it, it gets the children involved in music by right. either singing, dancing, or playing some type of percussive instrument. So you mentioned xylophones. It could also be recorded 
quarters. Yeah. Um, dancing could be, you know, with ribbons or with streamers or just some type of movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did this ORF side by side. And later, one of my colleagues posted a video on Facebook where you see this little black boy who is honestly conducting along with me. Mm-hmm. And one of my colleagues said he conducted every piece with you until wow. the very end. And they said, as the day progressed, I mean, it's only like a 50-minute concert. Yeah. But they said, as the 50 minutes progressed, he got better. Wow. And so one of the comments was... Meter changes and stuff. Yeah, right? (laughs) But one of the comments was, representation matters. Right. And I think that is my job. So he saw you, identified with you, Mm -hmm. and thought, okay, so I can do this. Yeah, I'm going to put my mom on blast real quick. So uh, the last time um, we visited with each other, you know, when I was down in Memphis, Mm -hmm. um, I was telling my mom, oh, yeah, and the Memphis Symphony has this new assistant conductor and um and she's a black woman is so phenomenal and you know my mom said oh i guess those white people are really gonna enjoy that aren't they you know so we have a long way to go but you're you're right that representation is so important you know this podcast in itself the very first interview uh the very first opus features marion who was blown away by the fact that when he went to go see the saint paul chamber orchestra and i happened to be subbing that week that he saw a a black person on stage playing the bassoon and you know i wasn't just buried you know it's the spco so it's like 16 people on stage and he thought i was getting it and all that so yeah uh, representation is not the end of the conversation of course but, not. but it's very is very important and and there's no telling you know that, that that little black boy that you're describing could you know he, he could be taking that story well into into old age well you know and I, and I always think back to you know when I started undergrad I was one of three black people in the entire classical music side wow remind me where you went um I went to a school called Chapman University okay you know but where were all the, the people of color on the jazz side. Mm, and yeah. when I started on uh, grad school, I was the only, you know, black Hispanic woman conductor. But there were two women in the conducting program, which okay. is fantastic. Yeah. But again, where were the other people, musicians of color on the jazz side? Mm. You know, so I think it's really interesting how even for me as a classical violinist growing up, I didn't have any representation outside of Regina Carter. Right. But Regina Carter was doing jazz. Mm-hmm. And jazz wasn't really my forte growing up. And, you know, because I wasn't really interested in conducting yet, I didn't know about James DePriest right. or Calvin Simmons. Yeah, rest in peace to James DePriest. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, Michael Morgan or Thomas Wilkins. I mean, those people weren't really on my radar. And so I look at kind of the up and coming generation and I want to be I want them to be able to see that they think these things are possible. Right. Because Symphonietta, which is the program, the conducting program I came from, they have this really great quote, which says people can't be what they can't see. Yeah. I never knew that I could be a conductor growing up because I didn't see anyone who looked like me. Hmm. Whereas, you know, this is what, one of the reasons why I love being in Memphis is because I am reflective of that community. Right. And right. I'm not saying that I need to be the poster child, but I think it's so important that that community sees someone like them on the podium doing what they never thought was possible because now they know it is. Right, right. You uh, you, you mentioned jazz and, you know, mm-hmm. as, as uh, cl- uh, classical, quote unquote, programming moves forward, both orchestral, Scott, what we do on the radio, there's just a melding of those two things. And I know uh, I had the honor of uh, curating American Public Media's uh, Black History Month stream on oh. our website where you could just listen to black classical music for hours and hours. And I felt like a lot of that needed to be a little representative of jazz and mm-hmm. the and the more i think about that word and the more i say it the more i hate it because 
you know, Duke Ellington's River Suite is very much a classical composition to me, yeah. despite the fact that is um, this it that it's infused with jazz. Mm-hmm. Now you take George Gershwin, or even you want to talk about uh, Mio or Ravel, yeah. and and the jazz that they infused in it is seen a little different. You know, we 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 let that remain in the classical boat. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do you and maybe not just specific to jazz? Do, do you see yourself integrating um, more uh, eclectic sounds? Um, in, into the things that you're looking to program in years to come? You know, I mean, most definitely. And I think as I continue to learn and grow in this business, you know, I would love for my programming to be reflective of me. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I, I feel like I'm really learning from Bob, my music director, is that his programming is so varied. You know, it's like he has his eclectic pieces. You know, he has the pieces that he does, you know, always does something by Mason Bates because he and Mason are very good colleagues. Yeah, shout out to Mason Bates. He's a phenomenal composer. But, you know, I think when I look at Bob's programming, it's like I really am able to see him, his personality, which, you know, he is also someone who loves a variety of genres. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not specifically just classical. So even though he teases me about metal, I mean, he he grew up listening to hair metal, which, you know, the Guns N' Roses and Rolling Stones and Aerosmith. But, you know, he also loves jazz. That's right? <laughs> Come, on Come on now, music is timeless. Music is timeless. I was, no, it's very true. Music is timeless. But no, I think it's important, and I just want to learn and grow. You know, actually learn as much as I can about everything, mm-hmm. so that my program can be diverse and not just kind of be the standards that people want to hear. So I'd like to hear more about you know this teasing aspect that you talked about because <laughs> uh, you know Winston Marsalis mm-hmm. and Branford Marsalis have both played you know, both sides, jazz and classical. Mm -hmm. And each one of them said that they were taking grief from the opposite of whatever they were playing. So if they were doing something in the jazz world, the classical people weren't giving them props Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. What's, what's your take on that? Again, I think I almost feel like it's people trying to put them into a box. Mm. A box that they cannot be put in because Wynton Marcellus bodies those Vivaldi concertos just as much as the Duke Ellington. Well, and, he's and, and, he has, and he has Grammys to prove it. Not that the Grammys are just the end-all, be-all, but right. no, no one else right. has won a Grammy in jazz and classical mm-hmm. in the same year mm-hmm. since. It's been a few decades And now. he's composing now. He's got lots of violin pieces out that Nicola Benedetti has premiered. I mean, that was and... like when Danny Elfman composed a violin concerto. Mm-hmm. You know, pe- pe- People were looking at Danny Elfman like, no, that's not what you do. Like, you, you are supposed to solely do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, well, it's okay to do other things because right. people evolve. Yeah. You know, even like, uh, I'm trying to think, was Danny Elfman the lead singer from Oingo Boingo? That's right. Yes. Dead okay. Man's Party. Hey, right? <laughs> yes. Back to school. Fantastic film. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think about those things where it's yeah. like, again, it's, it's people trying to pigeonhole and place people into these boxes. And I feel like it's the putting people into these boxes that is so dangerous. Yeah. Because but you're basically saying this is all you can do and anything else that you're interested in, just forget about. Yeah. They're going to be real mad when you come out with your rap album, Scott. Oh, I know. Well, <laughs> they're going to be mad for more than one reason. Well, I mean, remember when Eminem first came out? Yeah. Right? And yeah. then remember when Tiger first won whatever it's called in golf? Yeah. Like, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I remember one of my teachers, I was going to a community college studying theory. One of my teachers said, yeah, it's really funny when... You know, the person who has the best hip-hop album of the year is a white guy, and when the person who wins the golf championship is a black guy. And you're like, well, why is that funny? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, getting back to the specific challenges of black women, they were dragging Nikki when she came out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, still are, you know, it's it's just that so many of these music worlds are male run and male centered yeah. it, when or even white male centered in mm-hmm. many cases when there's something different. People just cannot accept that program. I mean, look at Lizzo. Yeah. Yeah, mixing all sorts of things. You know, had a whole black woman orchestra at the at the Grammys. Right? Many of those musicians are here at Sphinx. You know, and way. people are still kind of like, oh, I didn't know Lizzo played flute. Well, why is it such a strange thing that Lizzo plays flute? And then folks will be like, oh, well, all she does is that same little trill or whatever. But at the Grammys, you know, she played for us. And if you really want to go and dig and find, you know, she she plays the flute just as beautifully as anyone else. But People see, just think, can't take it. I think that's what you just said. You have to go dig and find. Right. Because, no one because wants to... we got to go learn everything about them. Exactly. So you're getting me fired up now. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't this also speak to the larger problem in this music where, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've read the quote, if... A piece of music is too similar to the top performers of the time, then you're copying. If it's too different, then we don't like it because you're not close enough to what the, the top music makers of the time are doing. Which is ridiculous because when I'm thinking about all of Haydn's 104 symphonies, Mozart's 41, and who else was around during that time, there mm-hmm. are a lot of similarities. There's a lot aren't of similarities. There? Right. Yeah. And then if somebody shows up and, you know, Beethoven does something a little bit noisy, and then everybody's like, ooh. This isn't what we're used to. This isn't very good. And that's like when Beethoven came out with the third symphony. Mm -hmm. You know, it strayed so far from the first and second symphonies, but then also really expanded the genre. Of course, at first it was like, oh, I don't I don't know if we like this. But now when you think of the Eroica symphony. You know, it's it's one that everyone prizes and everyone loves to listen to. And then on top of that, it was a very political piece of music in mm-hmm. those days. And mm-hmm. that's something else that folks try to separate from classical music these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Kalina, uh, in closing here, I'm wondering, uh, you know, what's on your calendar? What, what, what scores are sitting on your desk that you need to be <laughs> looking at right now instead of talking to us? Oh, I know, right? <laughs> um, so I'm all about introducing various composers to my kids. So we're doing some Coleridge Taylor. We're doing his ballad nice. in A minor. Um, we're doing Elgar. We are also doing Chaik 2, um, first and fourth movements, and then, believe, Shostakovich Festive Overture. Oh, you know, and I love Shosti. Right? I mean, who doesn't love Shosti? And it seems like the band version of Shosti is what all the wind <laughs> players know, so we have to change the key when, it, when we sit on the orchestra pretty stage. Pretty much. <laughs> you know, but in terms of Memphis Symphony, I mean, I'm pretty much covering until the end of the season, which I have no problem with, because I get to learn from every conductor that gets on that podium. Oh, so right yeah. now, uh, Harvey Felder, who's currently mm-hmm. a conductor of University of Memphis, Yep. We'll be conducting this next concert, which is Vivaldi's Four Seasons and then Piazzolla's Four Seasons, oh, yeah. mm, which nice. is fantastic. It is. You know, and then we have our Masterworks coming up, which uh, Michael Gandolfi is premiering a piece. Nice. Oh, I love him. Yeah. yeah. He's premiering a piece, which is fantastic. Uh, and then we have Robert Patterson, who is our second horn. Mm-hmm. Um, we're I also know, playing yeah, one of his piece. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Greek Piano Concerto in A Minor. Mm-hmm. And then Firebird Suite 1919. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. Shout out to Igor Stravinsky. <laughs> um, so uh, the last thing I want to ask you. So, you know, you're in my home. Town, you're mm-hmm. in my stomping grounds, mm-hmm. Black City, you know, um, making easy money, pimping hoes in style. That's what Memphis stands <laughs> but for. But you know, pimping ain't easy. Yeah, amen. And, and it's hard out here for a pimp as well. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's hard out there for a pimp. You ain't know it. Anyway, um, you got me forgetting. Oh, um, what, what, if, if you had the opportunity to stand on stage and talk to Black Memphis about why it's important for them to um, expose themselves, their children, their family to something that might be a little different for them. What, what, what would you What would you say to them? How How, can, how are you going to invite them into the into the Cannon Center? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. Um, how would I invite them? 
Again, when I would think, well, programming, I would have, well, I would not have to, but I would do it with pieces, again, that are reflective of that community. But then I think if, you know, if I were to do like a pre-concert talk, I would say this is why you need classical music when you don't even know it's for you. Yeah. You know, classical music saved my life, honestly. You know, it's not that I was this misguided person, but it really helped me to focus in on achieving my greatness. And I honestly feel like I'm on this path to achieving my greatness. You know, and it's because of classical music. And I think within the the black community, I think we are often taught or told that certain elitist things aren't for us. And it's really just presenting it in a way where this music is for everybody. Yeah. It's not just about dead white men or dead white women. You know, like we have Florence Price and we have William Grant Still and we have St. George's when you think about it. Yeah, way back when, you know, Margaret Bonds, who else? George Walker, you know, all these people, Adolphus Hale Stork. I mean, we did a concert at Metro Baptist Church back in October. And I mean, it was pretty much a filled congregation. And again, you know, that was, you make us so proud. I've never seen someone like me up there. But it's, I think what it comes down to is taking it out of the Cannon Center, actually, Mm. and bringing it into different um, neighborhoods in the community. Yeah. And then from that, opening up the conversation and inviting those people to the Cannon Center. Yeah. Because if you don't go to them, how are they going to come to you? Exactly. And, and you know, one of the ways I think about it is, is just presenting another opportunity. So maybe your mm-hmm. child is not going to be the concert master of the Boston Symphony mm-hmm. or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but they have been exposed to something that could lead to them being um, a teacher or, uh, or a radio host or, well, or whatever, you know, just expanding possibilities. You know, something I just thought about. So we had our Magic of Memphis concert, our Christmas Pops concert concert mm-hmm. and we did a black nativity which you know jesus was black anyway but that's another conversation I mean, yeah but you know <laughs> it, taking the words of the words and poetry of langston hughes mm-hmm. and you know setting it to a musical setting but we also had jukers or jukers i don't yeah. know how you say yeah, it. yeah. Mm. um you know we presented the nativity scene in you know a different format you know i mean it was fantastic and we took it to dyersburg yeah which is about an hour and a half away from yeah, Memphis. Yeah, about north. Yeah, one of the suburbs. Yeah, of and Memphis. you know what? I mean, the an hour out is a suburb. Yeah, from Memphis. Yeah. All right. And you know, but there was Memphis a lot is of... a real city, Scott. It is. It's true. <laughs> I wasn't trying to throw shade. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I don't know if you've been to Dyersburg, but you know, oh, I have. Yeah. Yes. And so you know the community then. <laughs> yes. And I'll be honest. A lot of the conversation was, "You're going to take a black nativity to Dyersburg." Yeah. Yeah. They loved it. Really. And, you know, that's the thing. It's about opening up that conversation and showing people what they didn't know was out there. And it's also because seasoning just tastes good. I mean, mm. doesn't it, though? <laughs> but isn't it, isn't it also um, uh, difficult to try to fight past what you think somebody is going to expect? Oh, most definitely. But then isn't the fight worth it? I would hope. You know, I mean, I think anything that's worth doing is worth fighting for. And any change that you really want to see, you're going to have to get your hands dirty, mm. you yeah. know. And yeah, just I, I won't get the quote exactly right, but you know, Winston Churchill once said, you know, if there's no music education, what are all these wars what, for? What are we fighting for? What are we fighting for? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, Kalina, it's been such a pleasure. Thank oh, you for thank being you. here. Thank you for having me. 
Scott, we really got to get down to Memphis. We got we got to figure okay. that out. You know, um, but, but between all of the blues and the and the rock and roll that that uh, that we could hear going up and down Bill Street, and then walking, you know, not too far from Bill Street over to the Cannon Center to see uh, Kalina lead the Memphis Symphony. That would be something. Yeah, just something. And you know, it, it, there's something you know that I just want to underscore one more time for from our conversation. You know, it, if people haven't been to Memphis or maybe don't know much about Memphis, you know, it is a it's very much a black city. You know, the the predominant uh, genre there um, is hip hop. So, you know, that's that's what most people go to because that's what most of the population sees themselves in. So to Mm -hmm. see uh, Kalina on the podium, you know, there's no telling what uh, possibilities could be um, could come from that. You know, I'm still thinking about uh, she's in the interview. You know, she talked about uh, leading a, a side by side and someone telling her that there was a little boy, a little black boy conducting along with her the uh, whole yeah, time. That was great. You know, think about that boy and think about when he's 50, 60, 70 years old. Maybe he won't be a, a world famous conductor, but he'll have that memory. He'll have that, he'll have story. that story. Yeah. And, and moments like that are so important. So a huge thanks to um, Maestro Kalina Bovell for uh, speaking with us on this opus of Triloquy. And um, I'd actually love to have her back. So we'll have to we'll have to collaborate again. Well, on the next opus of Triloquy, Scott, we are going to talk about drugs a little bit and crime and sex and all that sort of thing as it applies to a book um, turned TV show called Mozart in the Jungle. Did you uh, catch that one? I did. And I just got to say how exciting it is that you got her to... Uh, to do an interview. Yeah, the hats off. Yeah, that was the, great. The, the writer of that book, Blair Tyndall, really looking forward to uh, sharing her perspective with you here on Triloquy. Um, remember, uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can always send us a note at triloquy at americanpublicmedia.org. Lots of great videos available for you at triloquy.org. And uh, yeah, reach out and let us know what you think. We'll see you next time.